0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, artist, painter. It is Jarbo, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. has got several albums, quite new albums out This Decade Plus has reissued the album Skin, Blood, Women, Roses. And it's going to be touring November in the UK and Europe, starting off in London. And also coming to Colchester on the 10th of November. This is a co-tour with Joseph Ann Weisen, who um, she will be talking about very soon. So anyway, look, just... um, we're just going to get on with the interview now. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was and is going to be the tour that's um, hitting these shores very soon. Anyway, Jabo, it's over to you. Well, the
1: tour is a co-tour with Joseph Van Weyssen. And so he's going to be doing um, his set. He you know, plays the lute and, and uh, does vocals. So I'm really... Um, uh, you know, thrilled to be touring with him. And, um, uh, my set is going to, I'm going to be um, on a MacBook. I'm going to be doing ambient sounds and things that I've recorded from, from my, uh, my songs and, and then doing live vocals. <clears throat> and then I'm going to be my, uh, I will have P Emerson P- Williams, um, playing uh, electric guitar, uh, through effects, pedals and, um, loops and that kind of thing. Yes. And in terms of the, um, The set, we're going to be doing uh, some things from my prose, um, the the Feast to Forget Time. So I'll be doing a a couple of those pieces. And those pieces I last performed at the Necromonicon in Providence, Rhode Island, which is the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Literary Conference. And these pieces were, uh, some of these pieces are also used on my project, which is called Black Mouth, and so, uh, we're going to be doing a couple of those and those will be, you know, like, like, more well, like spoken. And then in terms of singing, um, uh, the oblivion seekers, uh, this is called of ancient memory on, uh, I think it's 13 masks. We're going to be doing that. And then, um, man of hate, which I did on illusory, the, the album from consoling sounds. We're going to be doing the, the reworked version of that. Then we're also going to be doing, um, the body lover, which is on, um, the sacrificial cake, which is, uh, coming, uh, any, any week now from, uh, the circle music is reissuing it as a lavender vinyl. Blimey. So we're going to be do- we're going to be doing that because they have lavender girls on there, the song. So we're going to be doing, um, doing that one as well. And it'll be, you know, a little bit after Halloween, but it's still, <laughs> it's still appropriate, I think yes. for, for this time frame.
0: So yeah, because your your latter work, especially um, Illusory and the was it a to uh, Tolpa, the, the the album that came out kind of two was it two years ago?
1: Oh, Illusory.
0: Yes, because that's uh, quite
1: well. Yeah, it was around twenty twenty. We were getting ready to tour that. Uh, Album and it was a wonderful tour with a lot of art galleries and it was very interesting and, and a home and a a, a, a show in a private home and we were all very excited and um, then of course the we couldn't do it because uh, everything was canceled due to the due to the COVID so. So, um, yeah, so that was around 2020. And then in the interim, the Skin, Blood, Women, Roses was reissued on Consoling Sounds.
0: Yes, which is, which is, um, was, so was this an, a release, this, I know this is, it kind of goes back decades now, but was this a kind of a, a, kind of a reissue that um, on a different label?
1: Well, I, I issued it um, this time under my own name as artist. And so I put Skin into the title of the album. So it's a Jarboe album, but the name of the album is Skin, Blood, Women, Roses. And and I wanted, and it's been completely remastered and, and uh, you know, re, the artwork redone. And so the artwork was deliberately done uh, to kind of give it a vintage look, kind of an aged look to the cover. Yes. And also uh, with blood spray on it, you know, to kind of emphasize the. The idea of uh, one thousand years, which you know, was a song—a a song written from the point of view of being a vampire—and <laughs> so, so we tried to drive that home, and um yeah, so so that came out, and um, that sold out immediately, and so I am thinking and hoping that there's a repress of that, perhaps on a different color vinyl, because th- this one that sold out was on a color called dracula and that is a like a blood and like a black and blood red color and i think the new one is a different color of red and so i'm hoping that they will the plan is they're going to bring this to me in brussels in person the label and so i'll have have some of those available for the rest of the tour there are a few copies of the original um uh original release which is sold out that was, uh, I asked to be sent to my friend in London so that I'll be able to um, have those available for the, well, I don't know, it depends on how long it is before they sell out, (laughs) but they'll (laughs) definitely be, they'll definitely be at the two London shows and, and maybe at the the Colchester, I don't, maybe they'll make some to that show as well, but, (laughs) but I was, I was very surprised, you know, they, um, they just went out the door, so.
0: God, that's fantastic! Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Because on there, you do an amazing version of Crimea River, don't you? Which is um, so. What was the what was the kind of the the kind of reason? Was that a song that was particularly um, important for you? Because it's um, yeah, it's quite a striking version you do.
1: It was the idea of uh, kind of representing um, from a woman's the whole album from a woman's point of view. Uh, so that's why uh, women is in the the title of the of the album so it was and and so this is why you know there's a thematic element to all the songs that we chose from uh kind of representing um you know during that time representing the idea of 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 woman womanhood womanness so so i mean you know all of it you know was was a direct um, a direct reference to things that were actually going on we were Working on this album in london, we were we were refining it, and we actually wrote "We'll Fall Apart" while we were living in an apartment near Highgate. And so we um we we were kind of referencing our lives at that time, you know, as well, too, with the things around us and what we were experiencing. Yes. Um, but but Crimea River was mostly chosen because I wanted to do it as a torch song. Rather than a coy song, so the the Julie London version is has more of a coy approach to it, and so I wanted to do more of a, an extreme, um, you know, a, a version, a much more, much more blood curdling kind of kind of version of lamentation and and anger and revenge. So I just wanted to give it a different treatment than than the original.
0: Yes, I think you definitely captured that actually on the album, because this was originally done in 1987, wasn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we recorded it um, primarily in, we recorded it before Children of God. We recorded it in studios around London and uh, many noteworthy studios, Conk Studio with the Kink's. Uh, studio and and uh, you know Black Wing where this mortal coil was was recorded and we worked with John Fryer so we went around to different studios and it was really wonderful to to you know to see the inside of of these these famous studios and and, and to work in you know in big rooms you know so it was a, it was a lot of fun and then to actually have a string section. Uh, members of the willing centers, you know, worked with Mark Allman. So that, so they play on 1000 years and, and it was just kind of great to, and then, kind of, so we kind of walked that line between, I guess you would say experimental kind of thing uh, with, um, you know, kind of classic musicianship. We kind of walked that line deliberately. Yes. So there's an, there's an innocence there, like the man I love, uh, there's an innocence there of the, the kind of, uh, you know, thundering kind of dominant piano chords. And then it goes into the more of the cocktail jazz kind of piano at the end. And, and, and so that was deliberate.
0: Yes, it's interesting because it's an interesting period because because um, you were also just starting to be in the band as well as doing a solo project. How were you managing to balance so much at such a sort of early stage of your kind of career? <laughs>
1: Well, it was, it was an interesting trajectory because I was starting to do, um, performances in art galleries and, uh, you know, tape projects, which is what was happening then. And, um, so I was developing kind of a a underground, um, notoriety for those. And then I heard, uh, Uh, power for power from the filth album from swans and i heard that and i was very intrigued because it was had a sound that i hadn't heard before i I thought it sounded quite tribal and i didn't hear it as as rock I, i heard it as more of a of a tribal element and i really really loved it so that's what prompted me to hunt down that album and to write on the back of the album to the address to get the lyrics. And then that eventually prompted with, you know, a a reply from uh, Michael Jura in the mail. And then that uh, I decided just to be bold enough to send him some of the stuff I was working on. So I created a package and sent it to him. And so he, he, he liked some of the aspects of the package uh, of my recordings. And so then we started talking on the phone and, and, and I wanted to come up there to, you know, to meet the band and to interview them for an art zine I was working on. (laughs) so, so, so we were doing a little art zine, you know, it was photocopied. Yes. So we decided to, I decided to go up there. So I was actually invited to a rehearsal in the space that I wound up living in (laughs) for years and years and years at the corner of Avenue B and East 6th Street. Right. And in those days it was, you know, very, very dangerous. And so this was something I had not seen before. Um, I had to have kind of a chaperone go with me uh, to even get to this location. That's how dangerous it was. A cab would not take you to Avenue A. That's how dangerous it was. So then I I met them, and um, it was mind-blowing. I mean, just the sound I heard was just overwhelming to me. At that point, I decided I didn't just want to interview them. I actually wanted to work with them and wanted to be part of it. And that took a long time of proving myself. Not only did I have to move up there, but they gave me uh, like schlep work, you know, like walking for blocks in the snow to get a um, press kit photocopied and checking the mail and write, answering uh, fan mail, sending out records, promos. So I did that kind of grunt work for a long, long time. And then, um, but before moving up there, I, um, which I guess was another proving oneself. I went on their 1984 European tour. That was their first European tour. And I flew myself over there to start the tour in Berlin. Of course, this was before the wall came down. And uh, that was quite an experience. I wound up staying with Blixa in, in Blixabargeld's apartment and meeting and hanging out with Unsturzenden Neubauten. And it was just really kind of an incredible experience, you know, because I loved them. I mean, I was listening to them before I went over there. So, so this was really eye-opening and exciting. And then we stayed in London for quite a long time and, and um, just traveling around. But, but, but again, it was very hard because... I was teetotal straight edge and had a buzz cut and wore wrestling boots and, you know, bike shorts. I mean, that's the kind of person I was. And so, so they were the opposite of that.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> they,
1: were, they were, they were chain smokers and drinkers. And um, so this was, um, you know, like, like a real, uh, you know, throwing the baby and throwing the baby in the river. I mean, this was a real sink or swim situation for me. And I, I, uh, I managed to just through my own sense of self-discipline, uh, to survive that and to become in very handy with, with logistics. And cause you know, I had, I had, had things going, I was, uh, had things on the ball, so to speak. So I, I was someone you could rely upon and depend on. Yes. And, um, Yeah. So basically I became, I guess you would call like a roadie of of keeping track of stuff, keeping track of gear, moving uh, parts of the drum kit around up and down steps. And, you know, that kind of thing is what I wound up doing. And so it was all about proving how tough you were, I guess, and um, not complaining. And then, uh, so, so I was tough. I fit in with the guys and dealt with a horrible, uh, logistics of how they toured then. And then, um, that wound up within the moving up there. And again, um, becoming the, the assistant, the person who did all that grunt work. And then, then that, uh, finally I got an opportunity to audition. So I auditioned, uh, I think it was in August. And then, um, I bought the Insonic Mirage keyboard and, and uh, Played that through a bass amp and learned how to operate that monstrosity of the keyboard because <laughs> it was a sampling keyboard, the first yes. of its kind. It was extremely un- unreliable on the road. And, um, yeah, so that opened that door of playing that for a long time. And then I did an entire tour uh, without ever singing. So I just did the loud, um, you know, the skinhead clubs and that yes. kind of thing and the the punk clubs as being the only woman usually in the entire venue including no no women in the audience, certainly no women around. And so that was also a, a, a trial by far a situation because I had objects thrown at me and I was spit on and yelled at and I kicked and <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was very punk, you know?
0: Yes. Um, yeah, it's quite so, a time. It was, um, yes. I, know.
1: <laughs> I survived all that. Um, I survived all that amazingly. and. Um, and then, of course, the conditions of living up there in the raw space, which is what we called it, the bunker, because it was a cement, you know, no window with a with a solid steel door and a police lock. So lived in there. There was no heat. There was no air conditioning. There was nothing. And we put in a, a, a plastic shower, and we cooked on a hot plate and had a little mini refrigerator. in it there. Was, it was very rough. and. That years. was how we lived. That's how we know. lived for years was... and years and years and years and years and years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the eighties, isn't it? We we sort of reminisce yeah. about sort of, you know, the fact we never had hot water or sort of reminisce <laughs> about sort of how when when did we ever wash clothes? Because we didn't even have a washing machine, but yeah to know.
1: Well we had to we had to, you know, you would carry it on your back and a duffel and go up a couple of blocks to the laundromat is how we did it.
0: Yes did you ever sort of find yourself feeling quite irritated because if you're the, the I don't know if you kept sober at that stage but if you do keep sober, yes I did so if you keep <laughs> sober around people who aren't sober they can start to be a quite jarring because you you can't sort of lose half your brain and start to act like um interestingly I don't know a dim, a bit of a dim person so how did you manage not to sort of Find yourself getting quite sort of bored, or sort of like intolerant. I didn't
1: get I didn't get bored, but I did definitely get intolerant after <laughs> some time went by. I mean, there's a famous recording you see through me, and um, that's that uh, argument on there. The recording is real. It's I pulled out my cassette recorder, and I recorded because he was it was just beyond control. Where you're trying to pay bills and pay rent and this kind of thing, and then the person would. Um, you know, have money in their pocket, and then just, you know, oh, I guess I dropped the money on the street. So this was something that would was starting to drive me insane, because we weren't in the position to just be losing money, because you were so inebriated that you lost it on the street. So not to mention, in, in those days, you didn't want to be in, in a condition like that, because you could have a knife held to your throat. So all of this was... Um, you know, it was really too much for me to take. And so then there did start to be quite a lot of of, of, of of me unable to control my anger. And I went through a lot with that for years. I did a whole album inspired by that called anadoniac which is, you know, in, in my use of the word Anadonia, adding the C to it, it it's you're an anadoniac which means you're an alcoholic and a maniac. And so it's like addicted to the inability to experience Pleasure, Not meaning hedonism, meaning, you know, living and enjoying your life. And so I, I kind of took that to the extreme. I did a song called Anadoniac Bottle. I, I did a, the title song Anadoniac. And so, so really that whole album was, was about, um, you know, when I, when I uh, left Swans and the whole album was about um, what I had been through in terms of living with, with that. And, but the good news is that eventually, um, the musicians, and there are quite a few well-known musicians in the area, in the neighborhood, uh, that had this problem. And the good news is that, um, all the ones that I know, except for one, um, have all, uh, uh joined AA and recovered. And so this is the, the good news is that there's always hope that you can control that disease and that you can, can, um, you know, can get it together. And so so i'm very very happy that that has happened
0: yes absolutely because i think the people from the late 70s mid to late 70s unfortunately all sort of succumbed to sort of mostly heroin addiction and death didn't they so that sort of knocked quite a big kind of um population of, of sort of yeah musicians who-
1: and i realized that that fortunately that that was not in our in my little steer of, of people you know I know that that happened to some people we performed with uh, bands that were um, maybe based in Europe and England and Australia and and but we our our you know little world there we didn't have that element thank goodness
0: yes, absolutely and then I mean after having your sort of the successful solo album, and then, you know, the the, the, the first ones, the, the album Children of God, did you did you sort of wrestle with what to do next with your kind of career? Because obviously, because the Children of God album was um, recorded in was it in the UK, wasn't it in Cornwall?
1: Yes, it was recorded in in England and we, we recorded it after we did the the the. the the skin blood women and roses projects we we uh, we recorded it after that so the, so the whole idea of, of, of my vocals and the um, song structure incorporating melodies and, and more songs in between the harsher elements of swans that was incorporated into children of god and and uh, that followed you know the skin albums that we did so so there was definitely a merging Becoming, um, you know, incorporating more, uh, I guess, musicality uh, to it rather than more of the industrial sound that had kind of been doing before. Um, but, but, but in terms of um, knowing what to do solo, no, that was never a problem because I was doing solo albums the entire time I was in Swans. I, I did Thirteen Mask. I did Beautiful People Limited with uh, uh, Larry Seven, a musician that lived. In the neighborhood. And, um, you know, I did Sacrificial Cake. I wrote Sacrificial Cake during the recording of The Great Annihilator. So, I mean, it was it was always um, I was always working on my own music. The band, the the rehearsals would end. They would all go out to the bars and I would stay behind and and work on a Casio writing songs by myself.
0: Yes. Did you? I mean, just briefly, how did what was your kind of musical awakening in life? You know, did you know what did you come from a musical family? Did you all did you sort of get into? I don't know. I did an interview with Susan from Band of Susans recently who. Sort of was very much into the classical music world and got into Philip Glass and studied with various people like that and then was very into the avant-garde world and then became part of the Band of Susans and then sort of has sort of gone back a little bit more to that that kind of classical world. I was just kind of curious what your sort of original background was like, because often that influences the rest of your career, doesn't it?
1: I would say my father was the biggest influence. He uh, was extremely musical. He played guitar. He had a beautiful singing voice. He played the, the, the organ. He he bought a Hammond organ and uh, it had two keyboards and a full, uh, a full pedals underneath it and all these stops and settings on it. So that is what I learned music on that instrument. And at a very young age, uh, even before taking those lessons, um, he would be uh, hitting notes and asking me to pitch to those notes. So I started doing that when I was just a little, little, you know, little kid. I mean, yes. four on a three. <laughs> so so, so, so uh, he was always, he was delighted that he, I could hit these notes. So then he paid for lessons. So I had, um, you know, years of keyboard lessons and vocal lessons And then he encouraged me to join all these choirs. And so I was in a bunch of choirs and then I joined a folk group. And so I did all that through school, um, And I excelled at all that. At one time, just uh, there there were two of us. It was another girl and and, and myself. We were we could hit the highest soprano notes in the choir. So this was, and then I I learned that I joined different sections. I was in the soprano section. I was in the alto section. I could move around at at great ease and sing in different keys, no problem. And so the teachers and directors of the choirs would take advantage of that and move me around when they needed voices in certain sections. and then, you know, alternately, I was always the kid that the teacher brought to the head of the class to read an essay mm-hmm. because I, I could read it without putting the kids to sleep. I would give emphasis and and kind of read it in a way that was more entertaining, you know, <laughs> than just the way the most kids. So, so that was kind of, um, you know, um, supported, too, by the teachers was the idea of performing with your voice. Yes. So this was Encouraged, you know, nonstop. Now the problem there was, when I got older, um, I I discovered uh, and started hearing, um, you know, well, basically it was all music coming out of England, rock music, blues-based rock music, and so this um, really kind of shifted things in my head where I wanted to sing in a different way. So I started studying and listening to how people were singing. And I tried to emulate that and, and kind of use breath of my voice and sing in a different way. And the teachers didn't like that. They said that was incorrect singing. And then I kind of got went through a rebellious period where I was like, well, I don't want to sing like that. I want, I want to sing like they're singing in the dance, you know. And so that was when I kind of rebelled and I refused to take any more of these lessons because they were stifling me. They were holding me back. And um, then, the, then it was a real—I um, guess one would say—an argument or a difference of opinion ensued with my father and I, because he didn't want—he wanted me to continue on the path of almost like a light opera, you know, and, and, and and he wanted me to sing, like, like he wanted me to do things like sing at weddings and that kind of thing. And I didn't want to do that. (laughs) I wanted to, I wanted to be up there with, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, I didn't want to be, (laughs) I didn't want to be doing the, the light opera and singing at weddings. So that's when things really came to a head when I started to form my own identity and not the one that my father wanted me to have
0: yes tricky times those moments did you sort of find yourself being able to sort of work through your vocal range you know you know singing sort of lower or higher singing from the head or singing from the base of your diaphragm did did all that kind of interest you and did you sort of find yourself oh yeah
1: yeah for sure it did and and I remember you know it was a very wonderful memory when I was with swans in Switzerland uh and, and they were recording um uh, an album, and and um, I uh, wasn't in the band then. This is when I was basically like a, a, a gopher, a, ro- a, a helper, a, a, a roadie, and so I um, was outside the vocal booth in Switzerland, and and uh, Michael was, um, I guess, trying to reach for ways to approach the the. The singing, on the lyrics on the song, and so I, I knocked on the door, went in there. I said, "Why don't you try holding long descending notes, and and do it from you know the lower part of your of your chest? You know, do it from your from the lower part of your body." And so this was basically the first time he he sang instead of shouting. And so he, I think he you know, to this day he credits me as teaching him how to sing. So so I was very interested in in you know how, how one could properly. Uh, sing from you know not not up from high in their neck, not shouting, but from singing from the lower parts of the body, and to to hold the breath, you know, and to bend it and to shape it. Right. And so, yeah, that I mean that kind of technique is something you learn pretty early on when you get when you get voice lessons.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but I mean, and he reciprocated um, with me with um, teaching me how to drop uh, the consonants because I was singing in a way that was quite formal so i'd say going you know and so he would say gonna right going and he would say you're an american sing like an american you know drop this this proper pronunciation of words and so i did learn how to do that and then that opened the door to developing um, an interest in using an apple i call it the Appalachian vernacular (laughs) it's where you're you're, 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 like I did it on Black Eyed Dog. I did it any number of songs, When She Breathes. So it's where you, Mother Father, it's where you're deliberately singing in an accent, like an untrained, uneducated accent to develop a character.
0: Yes. So did, did that mean that you at that stage, because going back slightly, when you got to 16, did you stay on at college or did you leave then or did you go through college? And Oh, of- no,
1: I went through all of the formal education. Right. I went through all of it. I went to a junior college, a regular college, a university and then back to another college. So I had I had seven years of, of formal uh, past the public school, well, here we call it public school, uh, past the, uh, you know, the high schools here, the grade schools, the high school, and then went on to seven years of formal
0: education. Limey, did you, had you started painting at that stage, by the way?
1: No, I was, uh, I was studying uh, primarily English literature Right and um, so the degrees were in English literature. Then I developed an interest in psychology, so I had a minor in psychology. So, so I think it shifted mostly to language and to writing and and um, you know reading enormous amounts of books and writing essays and and book reports and and then um, I um, decided to go back to to music and I started taking at the the last uh, school that I went to and that was studying histories of music and, 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 uh, 20th century music. And so that was a great, uh, a great education there because that the, the professors had us going to all the concerts, all the symphonies right. and all the concerts. And so it was really great, like, you know, going, going to see the symphony, but then also going to see Morton Sabotnik at Emory university, you know, and so electronic musician. So, I mean, it was, it was really, that was really opened up. Um, you know my ears to what was possible with composition
0: yes amazing did you I mean with a lot of your solo work as, as oh as you progress there has a sort of a sense of listening to it quite a sort of a spiritual I don't know vibe for a better word did you did you start to seek a bit of a some sort of I don't know path in life not kind of formally but just kind of subconsciously or even consciously i just was kind of curious actually a lot of listening to a lot I of i think it was of...
1: it was actually very consciously on my part i mean I, my first interest in buddhism happened when i was um, in school and um that carried on that's to, that continued on for years and years and years and it inspired um, you know many uh, songs and and album titles and uh, you know, it was a huge element in, in my life and it continues to be a huge element in my life. There's always a a nod to that in every album that I've ever done.
0: Right. That's interesting. Yes. No, and and also there was a, a couple of the albums that's got quite a percussive quality as well, which kind of reminds me of a sort of slight, I suppose, um, American Indian sort of, you know, you know element of your yeah the rhythm and and some of the that kind of vibrational quality as well and i just wondered if that had also started to sort of come into your work oh are you still there are you there Yes, I'm, there? yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: There, there was a phase, uh, a phase that I went through when I was studying the Native American Church and, and um, uh, you know, Native American culture. So I did have a phase because that was kind of you know when I was in school uh, that was kind of a thing people started getting interested in and and it did it did uh, you know I just I just absorbed that into um, the general uh, interest that I had in mysticism and and. Um, you know that, but that's definitely a part of of who I am, and in, in, in terms of my work and and um, my belief system, and it's always been there. I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic and and going to mass all the time. My mother was devoutly uh, devout Catholic, and so so I kind of I kind of went from that into um, into uh, studying different different forms, different cultures, and the one that finally. Um, felt resonated the most with me was was tibetan buddhism
0: right there you go i think that was david bowie's as well wasn't it he he sort of slightly slightly got um yes kind of entranced in in that world going back slightly when you um when you went to make that the second album which was for the swans which are the the burning world what was the kind of general dynamic like with the band because by then you had done you know your solo album you had done children of god and obviously there was a huge kind of status with the band. What was it? What was it like? Sort of, you know, preparing for that particular work.
1: Well, the first thing was a blood curdling scream and "Time is Money, Bastard." And then, um,
0: you know, then I went on
1: to do "Greed" and "Holy Money," and from from there, uh, we transitioned into doing the skin and then uh, uh, the Children of God. And then, but you're right. This was the curious thing was in between Children of God and The Burning World, Michael decided to do a cover of Level Terrace Apart. And so there were two versions of that. There was a version that I didn't like that he did the lead vocal on. And um, I kind of rebelled against that. There were some arguments there because I didn't feel that it was at all the right thing to do <laughs> and so so then that wound up with me uh doing my own version playing all the instruments and and, and norman playing guitar and doing it in a small studio in new york wharton tier studio and and uh so that was the black version with me doing the lead vocal which i still believe is the superior version of that song in terms of what we did yes so so to go from that to Children of God made no sense for me, um, his version to go from that. And of course that was an MTV video and it was, it was just not at all what I wanted to do. And so there was a lot of dissonance, a lot of disagreement then in the band. Uh, but the interesting thing was the commercial or, you know, poppy, I guess I'll call it version that he did. Uh, that was horrible. I mean, that, they, uh, when I was doing the background vocals for that, um, it was like you know all this stuff about telling me how to to sing, and and they wanted they wanted me to sound. I realized they wanted me to sound like a generic backup singer. That's not what I do. <laughs> so so it was really kind of a horrible moment for me. Um, but then this commercial effort—I going to use commercial in quotes—that got the attention of the ANR for the, the the people that um, signed Swans to do the Burning World, and so that's kind of a bizarre thing that that level terrace apart cover version uh, you know led to children of god because they, they, they have nothing i mean i mean i mean there was that led to the to the burning worlds i'm saying so we did children of god and then you go from that to level terrace apart right and then you go from that to the burning world so this was very strange days for me in terms of understanding um, what was happening because I didn't want to be part of that. And I didn't, um, I didn't enjoy the burning world process at all. And, um, yeah, so, so I could just see things like we're, we're, we were losing control, you know, and the curious thing about the burning world was, we were not allowed, uh, and primarily Michael, not allowed into the room when it was being uh, when Jason Casaro was mixing it, and that's very strange, you know, for the artist not to to be participating in the mix of their own album. Yes. So um, he was very professional, uh, very talented person, but he had worked with people like Madonna, and so I really didn't feel that I wanted. I mean, that was not why I was doing music. I didn't want to do music business, music, and so. Um yeah, so that was a lot of a, a lot of um I guess more arguing and, and disagreements about the direction of the group was was that particular album and then the single before it.
0: Yes. Well did you um had you sort of written and, and demoed the songs before going into the studio and thought actually these are quite yeah these are good songs or did you well the
1: the demos were good and the songs were good it was just just I didn't like the production of it and the interesting thing I was talking to someone the other day about it was was this is where my music my musicality again came into play was we had guest players on that record and I would sing hum what they should play so for example the string section on um, Goddamn the Sun. I mean, that's, I sang that string section part to the musicians to play that. And so I, I was into Shankar. Shankar, the violinist, was flown in from Peter Gabriel's tour to play on that album, flown into New York. And I sang on Let It Come Down. I sang that That violin part, which is mimicking, you know, it's a musical, musical approach to let it to singing, let it the words, let it come down. So that's a refrain that goes throughout that song, and I sang that to him to play. So this, this is the kind of stuff I did on that album with all these, all these uh, musicians that Bill Laswell had brought in to play on this record as guests. I, I, you know, my role there was I sang parts to them, and um, but the vocals of, um. The vocals uh, that I did on, on that album, the lead vocals I did on that album, and then they were one take. It was interesting. It was like I went into the to vocal booth, I sang, boom, done. You know, and and so that would be I remember who you are and and can't find my way home, and and um whereas that was not that was the, the time that uh, 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 of going over it and over it meticulously wasn't afforded to me. It was like go in, boom, that's it, you're done. Right. So Michael would be in there singing like for hours, you know. <laughs> so to me, that was a sign that it wasn't it wasn't, um, uh, you know, when something is that difficult for you to do, then that means that that's a red flag. Yes. So I, I I, don't I think that the songs themselves are great on that record. I'm I'm happy with my vocal performances on that record. I'm happy with what I did on that record. But I think in general, as a record, it was it was uh, should have been. Um, I think there were discussions of uh, early on. There were discussions with John Cale producing this album, and and then there were discussions with Flood producing this album. And so I really feel like that. I'm sorry that didn't happen because I, yes. I, I I felt my only problem is I I have a discerning. Um, I draw the line with what I consider to be commercial or music biz kind of sounding records and, and ones that are to me, not that way. They're, 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 they're more exploratory and, 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 and uh, I guess raw or, 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 or natural. So mm. this was, this was sort of the, what I, my was what my aesthetic was. So I, did, I don't like the, the idea that you would lose control over, over
0: a project. Yes. Did you, um? was most of that recorded in Martin BC? studio, is it B.C., B.C.'s?
1: Yeah, but we didn't record we recorded some stuff there, but we went all over the place. I mean, we were recording in in studios all over New York for that for that record. There was a there was a studio, um I'm sure the credits are on the album, but there was a studio in downtown Manhattan where we recorded a lot of that stuff. And this was a studio where there were some major stars in there recording. So so it was very um expensive and very <laughs> and and very um I guess glitzy you know yes and, yeah no martin studio was was where some of the vocals were done
0: yes i just i, I remember doing an interview with him a few years ago, and it sounded like an amazing space and place and and a nice location in in New York and, and had some amazing records. And I just noticed his name was on the credits. and I just wondered if um, that was kind of where you recorded some of it or most of it, but you didn't. I
1: remember doing my vocals there um, and uh, Michael did uh, vocals there. I do remember that. But yes. that wasn't where the all the guests, that wasn't the big studio where all the musicians like Jeff Bova and all the, that, that wasn't the studio where Shankar and all the big musicians came to record.
0: Yes, that must have been kind of strange having that period in the eight, late 80s, having such a sort of kind of, I suppose, an MTV kind of glossy moment really in your kind of creative career when, especially when, I suppose, in the UK we had, you know, like beat bands like My Bloody Valentine were, doing loveless and and sort of there was a bit of a different sound coming out of different you know london i suppose at that stage the north the north london scene with people like the faith healers and um, silver silverfish I, I guess yeah that must have been kind of confusing for the for this uh, lineup for the the swans did it mean that when you had trouble sort of then sort of picking yourself up for the next kind of project
1: yeah, I think um, there was some uncertainty there because um, albums were mixed and then they were remixed. So um, I think that what I would say, um, in, in my personal view, it's not an official view from Michael by, at all, but my personal view was that he kind of lost some, may have lost some, some uh, faith in himself after Burning World to, to do, to do. Uh, an album without additional uh, input. So I remember Jim Thurwell was brought in to to uh, remix. and then, um I think this last reissue, this would have been um, I don't know love alive or white light that, that that he went ahead and he re he reissued those using the original mixes, not the remix version. so um you know, I th- I think that this this confidence building is one of the confidence is one of the things that you need to hold on to as yes. as a, as as anyone as a musician as an actor no, no matter who it is you have to you have to hold on to that confidence and so I personally think that you know if you give yourself too, give too much power away whether it's to a producer or a director or whatever that that you might lose some of that. Um, Personal power, and and that's very important to to um, hold on to.
0: Yes, For your but own... he
1: definitely he. I want to say he definitely regained that that sense, you know. And so I'm very happy that he did regain that sense. And to me, if you're talking about the the the, the um, discography, uh, to me, Children of God, the natural follow up to that would be the Great Annihilator. And I loved the Great Annihilator. That was a very difficult recording. The studio was hell. But 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 the, but the work the work is in my opinion was was really good. I mean the famous story there was my lead vocal on Mother Father. Um, I did this an incredible gave it everything I had lead vocal. And I was being eaten alive by mosquitoes during the recording. I had welts all over my chest, all over my stomach, all over my face from being these. The studio was infested with mosquitoes. So I'm done with this vocal. I'm very happy because I've given it everything I have. And then I hear for the talk back. Oh, I forgot to press record.
0: Mm, that must have been a moment. So
1: that was an example of what it was like working at that studio.
0: <laughs> yes. And then, and and when were you were recording that particular album in the mid '90s, did you feel like that was going to be your last contribution with the band before going solo, completely solo?
1: No, I wasn't even thinking that way at all. Um, I wouldn't have ended the project because, um, uh, to me, it was an art project because it was a revolving door of musicians. I was the only one that, that stayed from the time I was officially part of it. Everyone else quit. And new people came in and quit, so I was the only one that hung in there. Hung in there. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so um, I didn't. I, I didn't. The last, the last tour. Um, I was shocked to be informed that it was going to be the last one because uh, I certainly had no intention of it becoming the last one. I just wanted the um, maybe the artistic direction to be to be a little more um, discussed about what was going on with it. And the the curious thing was the final tour I was on, the 97 tour was great in terms of it primarily, in, you know, in Europe and in this country with the venues and the audience attendance. And, and uh, I, I was very happy with the fact that the audience seemed to be getting larger and, and, and the enthusiasm more and more. And the show to me, um, you know culminating in my version of I crawled that yes. was what I wanted to do I wanted to do those kind of for lack of a better word theatrical based character driven performances where you shift and become different characters throughout the same song and this was a very satisfying uh, performance for me to 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 go from the whispery to the lost little girl to the to the bedazzled little girl to to then the monster at the end of the beast using a sub voice and this was all done live were no effects it wasn't manipulated by anybody, and it was really kind of showcasing what I could do in terms of my my, my, my shape shifting and my vocal shifting. And I did that every single night. And I, I loved doing that every single night. So I think that um, I was beginning to feel really, really happy with, with and I also liked the music in the 95 tour. So I mean, to me, um, um, I was becoming more and more inspired. Uh, as a musician in, in the band and the project so so i uh, i had nothing to do with him terminating it that was his choice
0: yes god moments on a track like blind which has got very distinct vocals and a very st- distinct narrative
1: mm-hmm. do you
0: do, do songs like that sort of do you find songs like that interesting or do you find it a little bit like yes pl- someone singing in third person or someone's kind of fantasy coming out
1: yeah, I, Blind as well as Alcohol the Seed. These were two songs. Um, of course, there were songs in the early years written from the point of view of, of Ed Gein. Of course, Young God Records, Young God is Ed Gein, a serial killer. Some people don't know that that's what Young God is named after, <laughs> but anyway. So, so, so the earlier songs had, had, uh, that he did had songs written from the point of view of the serial killer, and but Blind and Alcohol, of the Seed. I uh, talked to him about this because I didn't like, uh, I didn't support this that there might be misunderstanding that the audience might think you were advocating alcohol and so so he said that no uh, alcohol the sea was inspired by john barleycorn and that he was written it was a character based songs what he said had nothing to do with himself with person personal view and uh and then but blind to me was absolutely sounded autobiographical um and i i felt that um certainly failure and goddamn the sun also sounded quite autobiographical um i knew some of the people he was referencing that he was singing about and and so i mean they were real people so i think that um there was kind of a walking the line there between you know something that was autobiographical, and something that was that was uh, uh, a narrative about you know a character. And of course, a lot of songwriters do this; they're inspired by by things in their real life, and then they um, kind of abstract it. Yes. Yeah, so, it's, so it's a bit more of a metaphor. But "Blind" is a beautiful song. I mean, the melody is beautiful, and and um, it's 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 a, a really uh, uh, satisfying piece of music, uh, and it's actually quite quite uh quite interesting uh quite interesting lyrically
0: yes well also i could imagine and you must have experienced this quite a bit and you vaguely referenced it or mentioned it that people projected from the audience a lot onto the band imagining what you were all like and um and then you as characters start to sort of think oh perhaps that is me you know and that's that's what i need to now sort of satisfy their kind of fantasy by being the person that they think we are and i just wondered if that occasionally you had that kind of madness within the band or even with yourself
1: hmm. i i don't i don't know the the only the only uh idea that comes to mind with with encircling that that idea that topic would would be early on when um uh, Jack Belching came in to play as our, our, our sailman, And he had worked with quite a few very famous people, Henry Cal, test department. I, and so he, he, um, I think he even worked with Captain Beefheart, but anyway, he had said um, um, all of your characters. And so you're, when you're on stage, everything you do is amplified. Every movement that you make is bigger because you're on stage and people are looking at you. So don't just be, you know, be aware of the fact that, you know, and you pick up and you, you know, you're swigging a beer or whatever, that it's much bigger than somebody, you know, in the audience or someone in real life swigging a beer. So you just realize that you all have to become more formal with your, you know, sense of presence on stage. And those words resonated with me. Uh, and then he actually turned to me and said, Everyone except me had to be thinking about this because I already was doing it. <laughs> so, so, so um, yeah. So I mean, I think I always try to to be very um, deliberate and aware that you know. And, and 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 this case in point would be when I made a show, or at least I tried to make a show, of going on stage and then removing my earplugs and and very dramatically or very obviously, you know, stage. Um, movement putting them in my ears and that was a deliberate message to anyone in the audience that was looking oh look she's putting in earplugs it's okay for me to wear earplugs and now of course venues will have you know earplugs as you enter the door to the stage and I was way ahead of this trying to teach people that it's very uncool to go to a live concert and not wear earplugs
0: yes I know yes so did you were you part of that tour where I wasn't sure if it's uh, my my chronological kind of brain isn't possibly going to get this right? But were you at those concerts where the bass was very very low and the theory that people were going to throw up was that was that?
1: Yeah, the um the 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 British press in particular in those days. Uh, said um people were throwing up and all this kind of thing and i mean i don't know if that happened it must have been a very rare element i'm not aware of seeing anybody in the audience doing that but yeah it was it was definitely a rumbling factor going on um i uh i do uh i do know that um that you know those frequencies were extremely loud, but the the thing about it was, is it wasn't about like a metal. You know, not to say anything bad about metal, but it wasn't like the idea of metal being really loud and aggressive. The whole point was, it was again like an art, quote unquote, idea that the the sound, the the physicality of the sound was part of it. Right. And so, and this is why I much to michael's chagrin i would say it was an art project he said to his face and he would say no it's a band well it isn't a rock band because because he he had this idea that that this physicality that you should feel the music and of course that's fine as long as you're protecting your organs and protecting your eardrums (laughs) because it's 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 you know it's it's damaging and and I think that uh, that for sure, a member of the British press was the first to say the loudest band in the world. And so that moniker you know, stayed with us yes. wherever we went. Oh, the loudest band in the world. Oh, my God. And then they started having limiters and venues throughout Europe. And I can't tell you. I mean, I can think of several occasions where we had to actually change the venue and go somewhere else. And put signs up, and the audience having to figure out how to get to the new venue, because we had to leave the venue because we kept bl- we kept blowing the you know, making the limiter go off where the cops would show up. Right. And this happened in um, uh, Switzerland, uh, where the police actually came onto the stage to stop the show, and then we were banned from playing that country for quite a while. We couldn't even go there.) <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes, cuz we, we were
1: too loud, we were too loud.
0: Yes. So once once the mid 90s or just after them part that point and you became a solo artist, did you at all sort of struggle with the new not identity but just then sort of right this is the next part of my career because quite a few artists will feel quite disappointed if the band breaks or they've been the one who's been slightly pushed out and the band are continuing. So I just wondered how you then navigated without that kind of support and that kind of community.
1: Well, first of all, I think that, um, finances have a lot to do with it. So I think that the reason why, um, uh, when he finally reformed after declaring it dead, I think that it had to do with, um, uh, you know, seeking ways to make money, first of all, and I think that, um, that you know, risking you know, gambling that I'll bring this back and see if it flies. So I think that um, in terms of not inviting me back to it, but working with Norman again or Christoph again, I think that it had to do with the fact that where it ended the first time was with me as being a co-front person. And kind of um, holding the reins in, in different ways, and so I think he didn't want to share that that um, share that that position. Yeah. And so to incorporate me um, as as just someone playing an instrument um, probably wouldn't have worked for me. So I think that um, this was. Possibly his his reasoning there, Um, but the but the satisfying um, aspect of it was I got a lot of uh, letters and emails and things from from swans fans, uh, 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 you know, lamenting the fact that I wasn't there and that they had really enjoyed the breakup of the show with me taking over the vocals and becoming center stage which i only did you know say three times i mean during the show so it wasn't like it wasn't a dominant situation it was more of what i call a relief you know a (laughs) a relief and so something different coming in and so that was nice to you know to get those letters that was that was uh gratifying to feel to to feel um you know to feel appreciated
0: yes absolutely and also it's kind of I think it's quite good, you know, I don't know about the term, but energy for a band to have that slightly different dynamic because there's, you know, having four or five blokes in a band is going to be four or five blokes, but another, a woman, or more than just one, can just kind of give it a different dimension or different ideas. It's a bit like whether it's in a creative project or in a company or business or organisation, it kind of just has a different, people are coming from a different place through personal circumstance and culture and politics and also with age as well so I think that does it does make sometimes in a lot of cases a band a little bit more interesting because because men together as they get old can start to all become sort of one can't they? One sort of glob- globule.
1: Well the in terms of the identity thing, I mean, that is not something I can shuck off. I mean, that is that has always been there and it will I it will probably be there until the day I die. I mean, it's just it's, it's always Jarbo, you know, from Swans or Jarbo who was in Swans. And that's not something I can um I can control, no matter what I do. Uh, that is how they're going to bill me. That's how the promoters are going to mention me. And, and it's just it's just something I've come to accept, even though I've now done a tremendous amount of albums I've done. And I've been working for many, many years, way more years than I was working in Swans. And I've done way more albums since I was uh, not in Swans. So, so I think I've kind of established myself as not needing that that hanging over me
0: no quite and just coming back to that Crimea River which obviously we mentioned earlier um does that sort of come or appear as a sort of almost in the background or melody in some of your later work because I was listening to some of your solo work um very recently and I kept thinking oh I wonder what that is just I kind of kept feeling I could I could tell there was something I don't know some presence of something I just wondered if that was a song that that sometimes Kind of, uh, I wouldn't say loiters in the background, but it is kind of the energy or the presence of it is still with you. Sometimes in some of your later work, hmm. I
1: don't know. I, I, um, I, I, I just kind of, you know, when I recorded that, I, I, uh, and of course I do the kind of moaning, kind of weeping, kind of background vocals, and the piano, and the, um the lead vocal on it. I, I. I, I think that I um, just remember closing my eyes and just kind of, you know, going into a space of becoming that character. That's how I've, I, how I record. And um, I don't really think of anything outside of that world that that character is, is living in, whether I wrote the words or someone else wrote the words, it's just how I, how I operate. It's almost like a type of method acting or something. And so mm, it's, yes. it's, 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 but it, 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 um, it rarely has anything to do with, I mean, in terms of my daily, um, reality, it's, it's, it doesn't really have, it doesn't really come from that place. It's more of a place of, you know, creating a character and, or, or, or reaching out to a character, putting yourself there, uh, emotionally and, um, but then walking that line so that you're not, um, histrionic and, 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 um, you know, uh, over the top, like self-indulgent. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, that kind. There's always going to have, there has to be a restraint there, otherwise, it just becomes self-indulgent. And that's unprofessional. <laughs> so, so you, so you, for me, for me, it is. So, so there's always a, the idea that this is a performance. This is me becoming a character, like an actress who's a murderer in a movie, but she's not really one in her real life. So it's that kind of thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes absolutely and with the tour that's coming up that um is this the first time you've done live dates since I, th- I think you said you were just about to do something two years ago yeah. is, this the, is this the kind of first yeah, block COVID. of live dates for quite a few years
1: since, since well since covid yes the, the last live show i did was uh, right before the lockdown so the last show i did was um in 29 summer of 2019 in providence rhode island at the necromonicon the literary conference and so that was the last one so then we were following up with um we're going to go on and do this this tour of 2020 and to promote illusory and then that is when um the COVID uh, made things where that wasn't possible. Yes. And then that kept, that was, and everybody was like, oh, it'll be six months. We'll go then. So then it was rescheduled and that had to be canceled. And then it, I think it was even postponed yet again. And it was like, well, the fall, we'll do it. No, you can't do it in the fall. So, yeah, so it's been since the summer of 2019 that that um, that yes. I've done anything live. So
0: so you've got a whole month. Are you sort of, how do you prepare for such a sort of uh, a calendar of, of a kind of intensity and sort of being away and uh, sort of traveling around both the UK and Europe.
1: This is, well, I have a booking agent and a tour manager and they take care of all the logistics. Um, uh, but this tour, you know, this is a, again, a co-headline tour. So uh, it's, it's different than a, a totally solo tour. Yes. Um, um, so there's a certain amount of compromise there and a certain amount of um, shared and then separate. So, um, I think the biggest thing in my mind right now is how to get my personal baggage to London because of, you know of all the horror stories of Heathrow Airport. So um, I, I don't know what to do except to uh, mail in a box my stuff to my friend in London because I, I can't risk having my bag get lost at Heathrow and not showing up because I'm going to be moving every every, different city, every, pretty much every night for, for, until the first week through the first week of December. And I can't, I'm looking online trying to get information, you know, is Heathrow still a place I cannot check a bag? It's like, I can't find any answers except for, except for what happened this summer, you know, where Delta Delta airlines sent a plane to England empty just to get baggage from all the customers that had lost their bags so this is and I think they just hired 1300 new employees I don't know if those are all baggage handlers or what but so this is on my mind right now because this week I've got to mail that stuff off because it's I can't risk it not being there by the time I show up Uh, on November the 6th or 7th so that's the big problem the big problem I have right now is I've never faced a situation where I couldn't check a bag to start a tour
0: yeah that is tricky and is it the case that you've got any new material in the pipeline or even recorded that's going to be coming out next year
1: yes it's already um, started and and uh, I'd say three quarters of the way done uh, and so that will be, I'm, I'm going to, uh, when I get home, I'm going to do it in December. I'm going to do my best to finish that uh, in, in the new year and, and get it out. And, and there's also talk, only talk right now, with doing a, a project of um, jazz uh, uh, cover versions um, in our way, in our way of doing it with annie hogan and so we've been wanting to do this project for together for years so i'm hoping that that will actually happen because i'd love to work with her she's a good friend
0: yes absolutely does that mean that you have a, a you can do all this in your own have you got your own recording studio in your house
1: yes oh yeah Uh huh. so you that's can right, just yes.
0: turn up do it and get it done so that's quite good mm-hmm. isn't it that's amazing
1: yeah, so so this tour is going to be different um, because this tour, um, uh, P. Emerson Williams is going to be doing the electric guitar with the effects pedals, like I said, and then I'm going to be doing the live vocals. But I'm also going to be uh, performing on a MacBook, so I'm going to have all my sounds and stuff. So so it's going to be me on the computer and a lot of gear, you know, and and foot pedal and the the MacBook and then the live mic and so uh pre-recorded sounds as well as live playing sounds on that with him and so this is going to be a, a different experience for me because I will not be uh, doing only singing I'll be doing all the sound stuff as well
0: fantastic god we're so excited this is going to be great I'm sure your 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 Colchester dates but um, your London dates which are the first two you're going to see a lot of old friends aren't you turning up I can imagine who have been who relocated the, to the UK
1: yeah I hope uh I hope you know cuz we only know what it's like I only know what it's like in my area in terms of covid I mean it's really low here it's it's uh you know at least now I don't know what will happen this winter but I but in Europe I I don't know we're going to be prepared with our mask and all that stuff and and hoping that everything will, everyone will stay healthy
0: yes well we we all sort of being got a date for our I don't know, next jab for both the flu and then COVID. So there you go.
1: I've had all five of the COVID shots now. I I got the uh, Omicron variant uh, two weeks ago. And so now I've had five shots and I already got my flu vaccine. So I'm done with all that. (laughs)
0: I'm just looking forward to it. no
1: No side effects at all. The bivalent which targets the two uh, varieties of the Omicron, that that was perfectly fine.
0: No, yep. no problem at all. We're loving it, aren't we? That's good. Well, look, I'm so pleased to have done this. And I will put this out before, well, very soon, actually, because it's going to come around quickly. Um, and I can always send you a link as well. So you can always put it on whatever social media platform you use. But um, yes, well, look, best of luck. And I hope you have a great time throughout the UK, which, um, yes, I don't know. Yeah, London, Colchester, Newcastle, Manchester, and then it's Belgium and then Europe and it's all good. We just hope that there's not too many strikes in the UK. That's the main thing.
1: I know, I know. Well, I'm going to have a driver and a a, a van for the UK shows. I think Joseph is taking the train, which I'm not um, uh, feeling comfortable doing that. But then we're taking the international train to go into Brussels. So hopefully that will be fine. And then from there, from there on, we're in a van. So hopefully everything will go well. I have not taken the international train through the tunnel before. I've always just driven through it.
0: I'll be fine. I have done it. Yeah, it just feels a bit strange because you just suddenly go, oh, my ears are popping. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, that's yeah, fine yeah. by the by suddenly then you sort of feel like something's changing but you don't quite know what and then you're the other side and it's all done so there you go it'll yeah. be amazing look well look best of luck and thank you ever so much for this this has been amazing okay well thank
1: you david great and um look
0: have a lovely afternoon and um yes I'll, um yes i'll say goodbye and and take care okay see you later oh, thank
1: you okay bye bye-bye bye.
0: and that dear listener as always is how you end a interview with great panache and uh, her definite pose and a poise. Who knows? Anyway, look, massive thank you to Jarbo. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to know any more about um, her tour and also her work, if you go to, this is a website, which is got lots of W's dot, then it's thelivingjarbo.com. You will find more information, I'm sure, if you Google as well. Just Google for the sake of it or the love of it. You will get there. It's good. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can. (laughs) Lucky old you. Um, Or lucky me, really. This has been the C86 Show. Yeah, you can find me on um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, please. Life's too short. And um, also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.